I'm Daniel Stillman. And as Paul can attest, I am at someone who talks to strangers in bars. <laughs> that's, that's what you really need to know about me. Set up looks solid. <laughs> <laughs> this microphone was actually given to me by a podcast I was on. This is like a cheaper mic than the one that I have for my podcast. No, I'm sorry. Like, no offense, but I have one. Well, because you you wanted to be on video, and you know I, where I record is this tiny little closet, and it's the you know the light is terrible, and this is a much more interesting place to be. <laughs> Sometimes it can be noisy because the city is out there, but I found that it's generally pretty fine. So if I sound great, sounds really good to me. Awesome. It know? tends to not pick up all of the stuff outside. So here we are. It's been a minute. Good to see you. Same. You know, it has been a minute and it's so good to see you. Uh, the last time that I saw you was at this corner little bar, uh, I think at the corner of uh, Houston and something. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to recall what that place was called. I, I think you did mention one place in your book. Uh, where oh, was this to... Joe's? Was this on Elizabeth and Houston? I think so. And this wow. is like more than 10 years ago. Yeah, that's that's where I met you first. And I just kept following along on what you've been doing. <laughs> and here we are. I've been following along with what you've been doing a little bit, too. And you make you've been making some great content. What what made you want to make more content? Firstly is, uh, you know, I the son of a journalist and my dad's always been like media in, in facing and sort of in the public eye. And sort of I sort of got some of that character and trait from him. And yeah. I. I just have this craving to be on screen and record stuff. And I just find it to be a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It's more of a hobby turned into this now mm. more professionally done stuff. <laughs> so that's sort of where it's coming from. Uh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I, you know, from the time that we last met at Joe's, I read your book and look at the, all the post-it notes I have on wow, here. Wow, look at that. That's your book. Good talk. And I've been <laughs> raving. Oh, wait, trying to get it in focus. Yeah, I've been raving about this book. There you go. Uh, to all my friends, colleagues, and telling them about how freaking awesome this book is. And that's uh, really that's really amazing. For I really appreciate that. When you write a book, it's um, it's a weird conversation, and so it's uh, I I'm glad to see your sticky notes. That that I really appreciate that. I have a lot of sticky notes, helpful reminders of what to ask you. In. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's great to have the book because a, a friend of a friend reached out. She's like, you know, I want to get better at all these different conversations. And like, I want some new frameworks and blah, blah, blah. I'd love to pick your brain. I'm like, have you read my book? And she was like, no. And I'm like, well, go read my book. <laughs> and then I'm happy to have a conversation with you and you know, send you stuff that I didn't put in the book that I've learned since, or you can ask me questions about what's in the book, but like, it's great to just be able to tell people like, so I, I poured my brain. It's like, I don't know if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. I've been watching the rings of power and um, they talk about how the, he pours the, the, the like sour on this great evil pours all of his malice <laughs> and all of his will to, to, to control all life into the one ring. And I poured what little knowledge I had about this thing that I think we all do. And I care a lot about, right? Yeah. I, that's why I wrote the book. I just found the concept and I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast and you know, we're recording this, but hmm. the way you've sort of laid out the book, 
it just from like a very basic level to the structure of the book, the page layouts, just the very basic elements to how you've connected the dots between like some philosophical ideas to some very practical tips mm. and the science behind some of that. I just loved it. I just like all the dots connected so well. And um, I would love for you to take a few minutes and just introduce yourself, what you do <laughs> okay, uh, for the audience listening. Uh, that would be great. Sure. Sure. Well, I'm Daniel Stillman. And as Paul can attest, I am at someone who talks to strangers in bars. <laughs> that's, that's what you really need to know about me is that I'm somebody. And that's something I've learned when I was a kid. You know, my dad would talk to strangers all the time in the street and it would embarrass the hell out of me. And, you know, just like a cold, you know, fury would just go, ah, oh, this guy talking to strangers again. And I learned that from my friend Carl and who who was in the bar probably when you came in and hung out. Like you talk to strangers at bars sometimes. And sometimes it's interesting. And sometimes you almost get into a fight. <laughs> and sometimes you make a new friend or you make a connection. And that's like at the core, that's uh that's conversation design, right? Like some people are, or you know, what's our operating system with regards to conversation? Some people say, I only really like talking to my friends. I'm like, well, how'd they become your friends? Right. How are we built? How do we approach this thing that we are all the water that we're all swimming in, which is conversation? So my my background, which you know, is like I come from the design world. And my, my first degree was in physics. I studied physics at City College. I have a, a bachelor's in physics. And I wanted to go into something more creative. I was actually really interested in exhibit design, uh, science exhibit design, bringing education together with science. So I went to Pratt. And I studied industrial design because someone told me that they had a studio in exhibit design there, in which they did. And one of the things I, what I really learned there was human-centered design. We didn't even call it that then. It was just like, oh, well, let's talk to people, find out what they really want and need that they haven't been able to express and create something new in the world and everyone will love it. What a wonderful, magical formula. And when I got out into the world and I started working in the um the world of being a consultant working in agencies what they didn't teach me in design school was the process of engaging my clients and engaging my customers or their customers the users right the people a gente in the process of what should we make and so i think at one point very soon after i got out of design school i learned this word design thinking which was like, oh, here's a here's a word that encompasses this process, a design for a conversation. I didn't have that language at all, but that's that's where my origin story is. Like getting interested in how do I facilitate? Again, not a word that I was taught at the time. Like how do I facilitate all these dialogues from what do you want this thing to be to what should it be? What could it be? What might it be? Why why did we make it this way? All of those conversations, and I think. You know, after doing that for a couple of years, I just had this idealistic approach to like, well, if everyone could learn to speak this language, to have a shared language of creating something from nothing, then it would be great. We could play, you know, it's like we can't play baseball together if we don't know the rules of baseball. And so I spent a lot of years um, t 
teaching organizations at scale design thinking and facilitation mindsets. And then I think at some point I started to get burnt out and realize it is very hard to create, create change from the bottom up or from the middle out. And the it's one of the reasons why I've started working more in the last five years with one-on-one coaching, because I think at the core of change is a conversation that we have with ourselves and the more higher, the more high leverage a person I can work inside of an organization, the more high leverage the transformation. So I think I spent years being like, let's teach everyone how to do this. Meanwhile, the systems that were in place, the expectations, how they were being measured and rewarded, none of that was changing. And they were just hitting up against things all, all the time. And so I think change that way is hard. And so now, I think change starts with one individual. And so I work with people who are trying to create something great in the world and I'm their thought partner. And we that is the conversation I like to design most these days, which is how do you help one person go deep into what they want and what they were trying to create? And how do we get them to knock down all of the barriers in their way to creating that? So that is in a very large nutshell who I am and what I do. Oh, and I wrote the book that, you're, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way. Condensed all of his brilliant thinking into this book called Good Talk. Um, well, okay, I think you've touched on so many amazing things. And I mean, to you, it might be like ordinary stuff now because you've probably talked about these things at ad nauseum. But uh, well, you know, my mother is usually quoted several times in any conversation I have. One of the things my mom used to say is that the ceiling becomes the floor. Like as you're growing as a human being, And I think that's true for all of us is that like what was once new and impossible becomes standard issue. And I remember the first workshop I ran and I remember having to pitch my, my VP on it and have, and and just really trying to get him to say like, trust me, this will be interesting and how risky it was for him and how risky it was for me. And so now like doing that sort of stuff is old hat for me. But I still remember the feeling of, whoa, I'm caught, I'm kind of emulating someone else's thing and I don't know if this is gonna work and can I can I pull this off? Like, so yeah. For everyone else who's listening and wants to break the mold of the way we do things, like that's that's the edge. It's like, well, I want to change how we do things. So like, yeah, you're gonna hit some resistance 100 percent So out of all the things that you've said so far two things I want to touch on and I want to get you to expand on those. One is, you know, after reading this book, one realization that came to me and you've sort of hinted at it in different places in different ways is that, you know, we place so much emphasis on teaching people maths, history, you know, but in the world today, you know, as we realize, we don't teach kids about finance, but I think even something more fundamental than that is just teaching people how to communicate without communication. You have like, no relationship. So one of the one of the um, reviews, I think it's maybe on the back of the book. My friend Abby Covert, who wrote a wonderful book called "How to Make Sense of Any Mess," and it's a wonderful primer on information architecture. And her, what she said when I gave her the book and I asked her for a blurb, she was like, "We all assume that we know how to do this thing called conversing, but just like anything, there is an art." and a science to doing things. And 
I think it was Plato who said, like, life proceeds according to art. If you ask an adult person, like, how do you like to load the dishwasher? Right. You know, how do you fold your underpants? Like, they'll say either I don't give a fuck, I don't care, or I do it this way. Or, well, there are these three ways I've tried, and I found that this way works for me. And to me, I say life proceeds according to art. I'm I'm a Platonist, right? So I have a way I like to fold my underpants. I'm a recondo that stuff, right? <laughs> and so to what Abby's point, like there are some people who just get in a room, and I hear this from people. My mother has said, Daniel, I don't always want to design my conversations. And I say that is a design decision. So just getting into a room and saying, all right, everybody, so uh here's the thing, here's the problem. What should we do? Like literally just a totally unstructured brainstorm. And if you Google brainstorming, there's so many articles about it, like articles that'll tell you that they don't work, articles will tell you that they're broken and here's how to do it, about the neuroscience behind it. I mean, it's just a microcosm. Meetings and brainstorms are a microcosm of all the conversations we have. But so is networking and going to a party and talking to people. Dating is a microcosm of this. I don't know if you've ever read The Game. I'm embarrassed. I mean, it's a great book. I don't know if you've ever, like, men who do not know how to talk to women and the books that exist to help them do it in either a (laughs) douchey way or in an authentic way, right? And, like, that's important. So to me, I mean, like, yeah, there's a whole scale of conversation design where literally you take a 15-year-old boy who has is just dumbfounded by the concept and that somehow in his 20s, he's supposed to like have just put it together. Here's how I should talk to women. Here's how to be curious. Here's how to show interest. Here's how to mirror, right? Here's how to ask good questions that are based on not facts, but feelings. Here's how to elicit stories. These are all things that are highly relatable. And so these are things we're just not taught. And ironically, um, I love a good friend of mine who's an amazing UX uh, researcher, now um, uh, managing a team, and was having he was having trouble with his girlfriend and he was like, you know, she tells me her problems and like, I try to fix them and she doesn't like it. She keeps telling me not to fix her problems. And I said to him, I was like, well, buddy, I'm not going to name names, right? Let's just say first, you know, his name is Daniel. Just, you know, he's like, Daniel, me. No, this wasn't me. I mean, although I've been through this, <laughs> I was like, well, when you're talking to a customer and you're doing user research, and you're trying to understand the challenges that they're having with the product and they hit a wall with the product. Do you tell them how to fix it? It's like, no. I'm like, why not? He's like, well, because I want to understand their mental models really deeply and see what they're thinking about in terms of ways to solve it and try it to, to get their way through this challenge. I'm like, yeah. And so what do you do instead? He's like, well, I just ask them more open-ended questions and I try to like just elicit what's going on for them. And I'm like, so what if you used that mindset in your relationship conversation. And that's where I say, and his, like, I watched just like his eyes just sort of like, you know, galaxy brain memed where he was like, whoa, you're like, I would never try to solve a problem for someone in this context. And she's telling me she doesn't like it when I solve her problems in this other context. And I know what to do instead of solving a problem in these other contexts, which is just being curious. 
And so to me, a really great design is something that you can reuse in multiple contexts. And this is a, a great example of being able to say, well, curiosity and slowing down has value here. That's what we're doing. I would say like, we actually look at what's happening at the granular level of the conversation. We are designing the conversation for curiosity and low velocity in the user research conversation. And yet what he was doing in the girlfriend conversation is the opposite, trying to close instead of open, right? Going to conclusions instead of curiosity. And what it comes down to is, are you willing to exert conscious, mindful approaches to the conversations instead of habitual approaches to the conversation, if you're not getting what you need out of the conversation? I don't even remember what the question was, but I, I hope. No, I, this is, I love it. Um, so, okay. So just for the audience listening now in this book, you've sort of uh, presented a conversation OS and yeah. that your conversations have an operating system. And at some point in the conversation, we'll uh, dive into some of the elements of that operating system. Sure. But I think but just based on some of the things that you've just talked about and covered, I think there's this one sort of line or theme that you've you know expressed in the book, which I really liked, uh, which was you know uh, that conversations are because a lot of the stuff that we've talked about are external converse outside of us, but you have this concept of conversations in your head to complex conversations. Yeah, I, I saw that sticky note on the cover. Yeah, if you could talk about that a little bit happily. Yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, when I started writing the book, actually before I started writing the book, when I first sort of started thinking, being curious about conversation design, I came through the lens of where you and I come from, which is we're talking about multi-stakeholder, complex conversations about how to get a group of people inside, outside, between organizations to literally get on the same page to align and to move forward, right? Instead of being swirling and being stuck, you know, you know, looping through a conversation through conflict or uncertainty to accelerate it and move it forward. That's that's the that's where I came from. And design thinking was, you know, I know that there are lovers and haters of design thinking out there. Like I still, in my heart, am a true believer in the idea that starting from the user and generating multiple options, prototyping them in some way, shape, or form, and then reflecting is a you know, pretty great approach to getting getting stuff out the door, right? What I discovered when I started doing research and interviewing people about conversations was that it's a much bigger world. And, you know, if you read the book, which you have, if you're there in podcast land, like I started to realize like, well, wait, what is an even bigger conversation than a group of people solving a problem? Well, it is an, an organization is a conversation. It's a system of conversations because I was teaching people stakeholder mapping. And if you want to like map the whole system of dialogue in an organization, like that's a thing. Um, good friend of mine had a startup which did not do well um, because of privacy concerns. They they were working on a project where imagine a, uh, 
putting a microphone on everybody in an organization and not recording their conversations, but just recording when they are speaking or when they're listening. And because you know where they are, you could dis- discover who they're speaking to and when they're speaking to them. Back when we were in person, you could build a conversational map of the organization and you would know, objectively speaking, who's speaking to who and when. We already know, because we've felt this, who am I not supposed to talk to? Who must I never speak to unless I speak to someone else first? I was coaching somebody who had the opportunity to connect with the CEO. He ran into the CEO in the in the in the halls and was like, Oh, I'd love to get a couple of minutes of your time. And it seems like a totally logical thing. He's ambitious. He wants to make that happen. And then it creates all this tension with his direct uh, manager. Like, well, what are you going to talk? Like, I'm usually the, I'm the gateway. And what's an important enough conversation to bring to his doorstep? Am I going to pitch him? Do I just want to get to know him? Like, what's what am I allowed to say to the CEO of my company? Because I'm in the middle and he's at the top. So like, organizations are conversations. And that's so like, I started to look at the upper limit of the conversational range, right? And what I realized from my own values as a facilitator was that giving people time to reflect was useful. Giving people time to talk to someone else was useful. And so I had developed that ethic that, you know, you don't just have a big conversation about what we're going to do everybody all in a circle, you get somebody to pair up with someone else, you get into small groups, you have that variety. Um, and there was a, a book that came across my desk by a guy named Charles Fennyroch called The Voices in Your Head. And that's when I realized there was a research about, we talk to ourselves, we have inner stakeholders. I don't know, Paul, how's your uh, inner critic? Mine's a fairly active participant in my conversations, right? You know, who's here had a conversation with themselves about, I'm not enough. Uh, I don't deserve that. How dare they? Next time I'm going to blank, right? I can't believe we blanked. So we are talking to ourselves uh, and you can study it. And it turns out, I think self-talk is without a doubt the most important conversation of all. In so much as, for sure, whole books have been written about it. I was foolish enough to just, you know, just one paltry chapter about it. But what I've realized uh, when I was writing that chapter and in the years since, it's just how foundational that conversation we have with ourselves is. Certainly when I'm coaching someone, uh, nine times out of 10, I can tell you there's the conversation about, well, I should do this. I want to do that. Those are two really important inner stakeholders, what I should do, what I want to do. I'm concerned about the consequences if this. And in um, negotiation theory, uh, if, you, if you've read Getting to Yes, um, I had the pleasure of going to the Harvard Negotiation Institute a couple of years ago, and they talk about how uh, the term they use in the program in negotiation is uh, aspiration value, like what I aspire to when I go into a negotiation. So there's some people who go into a negotiation and say, God, I I hope I get more than blank. 
Like, I hope they offer me more than blank. And when they offer less than blank, they go, well, you know, oh, well. And there's some people who say like, I want to get this. And they go into the conversation. And when they get offered less than that, they say, so I was really expecting an offer that was this. What can you, what can you do? And there's just a different mindset based on what you aspire to. A lot of the difference in uh, male and female um, salaries, there's been some studies that have have tried to link it to, and it's hard to say where the training comes from, but just the fact that men are somehow acculturated to ask more often for more than women do over decades and millennia potentially it creates a larger and larger income gap. And so there are organizations like in my in my book, I interviewed uh, Clara Wasserman, who is the founder of Ladies Get Paid, wonderful women's organization that teaches women how to negotiate and to get that aspiration value. Like literally, Ladies Get Paid is just a sticker that everybody should have above their screen. Certainly women should be reminded it's okay to ask because there's somehow an inner script that were that women have been given, inherited, have self. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a guy, so I I don't know what the programming is. But there, are, you can shift that inner conversation, and just Claire having conversations with more women, changing the conversation through her community, can help more women to say it is okay for me to ask for more instead of the inner conversation being if I ask for more, I look like a blank insert negative um, descriptor, right? So that's where the inner conversation is immensely powerful, immensely powerful. Just by shifting the I deserve more or I can ask her more, it is okay if I ask for more versus I daren't, I mustn't, I shouldn't ask for more is is incredibly transformative. And so the inner conversation and, and having that, doing that work to clear the decks is incredibly now what's not in the book. Well, I mean, there's, this is a little bit, but like, if you look at the spectrum from like conversations with yourself to giant organizational or community or societal conversations, people like um, Martin Luther King Jr. Who were not just talking to the, the black community, but we're trying to talk to humanity, the human soul. He was a global thought leader, right? Because he was, I think in his mind, speaking to humanity. Uh, my brother took issue with my book because he said, you don't have conversations with infinity, <laughs> right? Like you don't have, con- you didn't talk about conversations with nature or God, right? And those books exist. Um, my friend Casper Takul, who wrote a book called The Power of uh, Ritual, who I had on my podcast, wonderful thinker. He thinks about, well, what can we learn from religion to help not secular people still have those conversations about the ineffability of life, the cycles of nature and death and life and love, you know, big, big questions. And on the way infinite other side of the spectrum is the ability to have silence, meditation, reflection without words, just pure being, right? So I think it's, it becomes a circle, uh, (laughs) <laughs> there are some of these conversations are higher value uh in an obvious economic sense 
<laughs> right? Like, um, I it would be hard. I mean, there are people who sell conversations with the infinite and there's people who, uh, sell, I, I will help your team have an effective meeting, but that's all just part of a weird giant spectrum for me. <laughs> I hope that's helpful. It's all helpful. It's all great perspective. And what I really like about sort of, again, what what you do is you marry sort of philosophical with like the very practical, theoretical. To be honest, like I have like a sort of a allergic reaction to frameworks and processes and, you know, just the corporatization of stuff. But when I read your book, it's like, even though you have that structure, but you're just presenting in this like very like, hey, here's like scaffolding for you to sort of <laughs> build on top of. It's like, yeah. this is not the rule. One paragraph that I've sort of highlighted at the bottom here is, you know, you talked about how sort of the voices in our head over time have been informed by other people that we've listened to, heard, and, you know, people that we look up to. So our opinions are thought process is sort of informed over time. And you also talked about another element. I'm going to sort of tie it all together so you can and frame it into an actual question for you is how to get better at perspective taking, knowing that, you know, that we're all a sum of different voices and how to get uncover the real uh, uh, challenge behind somebody, what they're saying. For example, in the case of your friend with his girlfriend, he's like, you know, you're like lower the velocity and then from a leadership perspective, recognizing that and how to tackle that and for better understanding someone. So how do you sort of look at some of those elements? Yeah, there's so there's a couple of pieces there. And one is um, leadership and maybe what, you know, how do we learn how to be? And we're all living a series of memes, for lack of a better word, right? Um, that's such a good, I think it was my, my, <laughs> right. Well, it's like how, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think like all's well that ends well, right. Silence is golden. I mean, these are old sayings. Most of us don't live by the old words anymore. So I had a woman, um, a professor, Miriam, uh, Marilyn just rather wrote a book called the extraordinary power of leader humility and wonderful thinker. And she lays out, she's trying to make a case for leader humility as a fundamental value for leaders. When we think about, and this is an exercise that people have done, you know, when I've done leadership development workshops, just ask people, like, draw what you think a leader is. Find some pictures on the internet. Just Google leader, right? What are the images? Right. And the memes that come up are male, they're white, there's a tie, there's a jacket, there's um, a sense of power, there's being at the front of the room, there's being above people, it's being in the center of the people. Like we can see all of those images, like if you Google them. And she's saying, well, what if leadership is actually about humility? Why don't we have that in our inner conversation? And she's, she teaches leadership at a pretty high level inside of lots of organizations. And so she's trying to change the conversation about leadership. So that when we say, I'm a leader, this is why people write books about servant leadership and leaders eat last, trying to change the conversation about um, old modes of leadership 
to more modern perspectives of distributed, integrative, servant, mindful, presence-based leadership. And I think there's something to be said for that. Um, is that, and there's a second part of your conversation, the question, which is around like the parts. Um, my friend, uh, Mike Sagan, who uh, I met through men's work that uh, we both, we both are, I, he's more of a men's coach than I am. I don't just coach men. Um, we met through a men's leadership program that we were in together. And in our conversation, which I highly recommend people listen to, Mike talks about, you know, kind of a classic model for levels of listening. And what I think is interesting about the levels of listening is that often people assume that um, one type of listening is better than the other in the sense that um, level three listening, a great gift we can give to people is having our conversation full, our, our attention fully on the other person. But where are we? Are we in the picture as well? Some people would say like, oh, well, listening to yourself and being in your head while you're someone else is talking is bad. Sure. But oh, being aware of your experience and staying connected to yourself while someone else is speaking is actually pretty, A, difficult to do and really valuable. What am I sensing? What am I experiencing while this person is talking? And so I think it is a real challenge to keep both in in mind, in presence at the same time. But I think it's a great thing to say like, you know, one of the things I'm sensing is this, but I don't want to ask about that. I want to create space for more for them, but to come back to that, these are all inner dialogues that we're having with ourselves. But it can ask us, it can, tapping into our own intuition in the moment, it can help us ask better, deeper questions. So, I, I mean, I think this is part of Trusting your own sensation, being in touch with what you're feeling is part of, I, I think, part of being a great listener. You know, as when I'm in a coaching conversation with someone, I'm like a million things are happening with me. There's so many pathways that I'm sitting with and thinking about. And I'm asking myself, what will help them go deeper into themselves? When do I feel like it's the right time to draw them closer to action versus option creation? And that's that's a feel thing that I'm looking at. But those those roads are open to me. And I think when we're in a position of leadership, we can either be mindful of, am I opening? exploring or closing? Am I helping them open and explore more? Or can I help them close? Um, approaching that intentionally is really, I think, has has value rather than doing it like, what are we going to do here? Right? Because that, that comes from a place of usually unrecognized internal anxiety, speaking from direct personal experience. This is literally a question I had for you. I had put how to listen like a pro listen like a like a pro yeah and you literally answered that I, I think the one point that you touched on you were like you know as you're listening to someone you might get this urge to say something but you're like no wait and this is comes with practice and that's where the expertise is like allowing space 
for that to sort of unravel and unpack even more? Well, this is again, optimizing for when I say we're designing the conversation, am I designing it to be accelerative and forward moving or am I intentionally slowing it down? I had Oscar Tromboli who wrote a whole book on deep listening on my podcast and hilariously, I mean, he's a wonderful thinker, but also it was very frustrating to interview him in some sense, because I would say like, well, how do you listen better? And he was like, drink more water, stay hydrated. For the guest listening, uh, Daniel just had a sip of water as he's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Love it. And he was really slowed down. And and you're right. Like, I do love frameworks because um, I don't know if you're familiar with triple loop learning. Um, I have, there's an article I wrote about it on my pot, on my blog. I, I learned, there's a lot of different places you can learn about it. Um, Peter Senji. Sengi talks about it in um, uh, the fifth discipline. There's, a, or is it Chris Argyris? Oh man, that's embarrassing. But anyway, it's out there. If you Google triple loop learning, it's we have a goal. What should I do to get on that goal? Get towards that goal. If I'm doing the wrong thing, if I'm going too far to the left, I should go to the right. That's that's single loop learning. I want to stay on track. And the do loop is very important, but if we're stuck in the do loop, we can get into what I call an insanity loop, which is like doing the same thing over and over again and not getting the same result, not getting the result we want, like continuously emailing somebody or asking a girl out over and over again and getting a no every time, never changing your approach. Hey, I need your input for this report. Like, hey, I still need your input as per my previous email, <laughs> right? Like we know that that doesn't work. And so then... The second loop of triple loop learning is thinking differently so that you can do differently. And thinking differently can be like, well, how can I uh, change what my assumptions are about the situation? How can I empathize more so that I can apply different types of doing to the situation? And so um, a mental model, a framework can change our thinking by opening us up to realizing that there are other ways to approach the challenge. The, th the third loop of triple loop learning is being differently, changing how we are so that we can think differently. It is very hard to think the unthinkable. And that is why we interact with other people. And it's also how we change our aspirations and who do we want to, how do we believe we can be in that situation? And so when we talk about listening, to me, um, I was reading our Harvard Business Review article about um, integrating or interacting with uh, people inside of an organization across uh, polarized uh, political lines, which is a real challenge, right? It's a challenge in America. It's a challenge in the world. Like, can I, as a liberal Democrat who believes in um, abortion rights, engage with someone who believes in the right to life, which is an amazing narrative? How can we even have a conversation across those divides? And if, you know, can we be even, can we be in America together? Really hard. Can we be in New York together? Still hard. 
well, now we're in the same organization and on the same team and some of this stuff comes up. Like, how am I supposed to engage with someone who I think is wrong, deeply wrong-headed, right? And so they, they actually um, mentioned something called the listening triangle. Like it was just like a, it was an aside and I Googled it and I didn't really find much about it. And so I just made my own listening triangle based on what I had read in this article. So we talk about active listening. Active listening, we know, is uh, you hear what somebody says and you paraphrase it and repeat it back to them. Now, my friend Dust, uh, Fred Dust, who who wrote a book called Making Conversation, I also had him on my, my podcast, doesn't like the idea of active listening because he thinks it's mechanical, that it's in the do loop, right? Just doing things differently. I'm like, no, active listening is a way to think differently. Once you teach somebody you have to be act- an active listener, they're like, well, I can, d- I can do that. Great. Let's, let's work on the do loop. Let's make that shift. You now know that this framework exists. And so now I'm going to paraphrase and repeat back what you said to me. And that's just going to automatically make you a better listener. You don't have to know why it works. The listening triangle says you, you ask a question and when you hear the answer, you don't just paraphrase, you re-ask the same question in a different way. You're like, so in a way, you paraphrase by re-asking. You say, like, so I'm hearing you say that. Is that right? They say yes. Like, so I'm wondering, like, can you tell me more about blank, the thing you just asked them about? You just kind of rotate your question a little bit and then listen again. And when I drew this converse, this this listening triangle, people were like, "Oh my god, I love this listening triangle!" It you know, lots of people you know reshared it. People responded to the email. That's actually how I know Paul. When you talk about conversations, when I share it to my newsletter, and people email me back saying that was really cool, I go, "Oh, I should probably put this on on Medium and LinkedIn because people like it." And that's a mental model that immediately so like giving people some scaffolding on the thinking level to say, oh, here's a triangle. And it's about going to the center of the conversation with this person and triangulating what it is that they really think. It's not about trying to be right. It's not trying to like catch them out. It's just going to the heart of the matter with them. And and I think it's really powerful to have frameworks right? That, that shift how you think. And it certainly helped me think better. Like I have the listening triangle right here at the bottom of my monitor because it just reminds me to like re-ask from time to time to like listen, listen again, and then ask again and to listen again. All the podcasts articles that uh, Daniel's referring to, I'll make it a point to put all those links in the show description. Um, so you can sit back and continue enjoying this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to Google, you don't have to go- you don't have to Google it all. Yeah, I'll do the legwork so you don't have to. I'll help you a little bit too. Perfect. Speaking of which, you know, I have one post-it note on my screen which I'm trying to work on is always, I always have this in, in front of me. What is it? Oh, talk less, ask more questions. Yeah, exactly. That's a mental model right there. It just, you know, here's the thing, like it, the listening triangle, this is where like, if you made that into a, this is where I say like, we're all running on memes, 
Like if you make that into an acronym, it just becomes stickier. Like right. what is that? What does that spell? Talk, talk less, smile more. That's the uh, that's the Hamilton. <laughs> the, yeah, it's the Aaron Burr principle. Call it the Aaron Burr principle, right? <laughs> it's uh, right. I don't know if you're a Hamilton fan for all the Hamilton fans in the audience. Never let them know what you are against or what you're for. No, you've not watched Hamilton on Disney plus. No, not yet, but I, I will check it out on your recommendation. Um, Oh man. Well, only if you like musicals, T lamb, we'll just say it's like talk less, ask more. I was walking past, uh, there's like, you know, the, the Toronto opera, uh, and ballet. So they have like the, so I was, walking by, I saw all these big posters yesterday. I was walking with my friend at night and I'm like, I've never been to a ballet. He's like, dude, just go. He's like, I've been to a couple of them. He really enjoyed them. He's like, you should just go check it out. I'm like, okay. Noted. Yeah. I will go check out a ballet and see what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have a Disney plus subscription, just listen to Hamilton. See what all the fuss right. is about. <laughs> I will check it out. I will definitely give it the first episode to see what it's all about. Well, Hamilton isn't an episode. It's 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 just like one three-hour blockbuster history of Alexander Hamilton. Oh, okay. You've you've heard you've probably heard pieces of this. I I'd be hard pressed to imagine that it has fully escaped your consciousness to to hear about um, Alexander Hamilton and Lin Manuel Miranda. If you've watched any of the great Pixar movies, Encanto or Moana, you've heard Lin Manuel Miranda songs. When you listen to Hamilton, you'll be like, "Ah, this is really familiar sounding because it's been copied by so many other places, and he's he's formulatized it in so many other ways." Again, not what we're here to talk about, but <laughs> I, I, I will sometimes just ask, "I, if you're listening." <laughs> Echo, play Hamilton. <laughs> I can turn Alexa, turn on Hamilton. I, I, I'll just listen to it. It's great. Uh, you know, if I wasn't wearing headphones, it would be playing right now because I have one sitting right yeah. here. I'm not even going to take the name because it might get it triggered. <laughs> yeah, I understand. I so. believe me, I understand. <laughs> Okay, you touched on a lot of really cool stuff. Um, one thing in terms of is, you know, as a leader um, or just as a person, mm. you know, how to become better at listening. And then you talked about mm. uh, one part that uh, you talked about was, you know, sort of um, understanding the velocity of the conversation, knowing when to slow down and mm. when to speed up. But then you also talked about, which I really like that point, um, is that as you're listening to someone, you might get the urge to say something, but knowing as an expert mm -hmm. listener to give them the space and to let that just happen and know when to chime in when, when not to. And then the listening triangle, mm -hmm. which is following up, you know, like I think we've both read this book by this uh, guy who wrote, uh, who wrote about like, you know, how to be uh, on coaching. And you've mentioned this person, Michael Bungay in your book as well. I've read his books as oh, well. Oh, Michael Bungay Singer. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Great stuff. And those are, that's a, it's a designing conversation. So right here's seven questions. It'll just make you a better coach, even if you're not a coach. And in fact, you know, even in your book, you're like, you know, uh, what, uh, you know, asking versus telling might be what differentiates coaching from other feedback relationships. I've been thinking about, I did some writing a while back, which I, I, I need to go back to and refine. So I was talking with another friend of mine who's a coach and we were talking about what questions should someone ask themselves when they are looking for a coach? 
right? Because there are different types of coaches, right? There are life coaches and there are executive coaches. As my coach likes to joke, all executive coaches are life coaches, but not all life coaches are executive coaches. At least the way that I coach is that the inner conversation and how your life is going and how you are and how you show up is part of the conversation, right? There are some people who, when they are looking for a coach, what they really want is a consultant or an advisor, right? They, they are, they're saying, I want to tell someone my problem and I want them to diagnose, diagnose what the challenge is and to give me the right answer. That's an advisor That's a, or a mentor. A mentor will tell you in similar situations, I have done X because I've been where you are, right? An advisor or a mentor will do that. The, the, I think the central question of a coach is, is a coach supposed to give you the answer or are you supposed to have the answer? Is it about finding your own answer? And it's a very confronting idea. The idea that the right answer exists is only true if you're trying to do something that's conventional. Right. If you're trying to run a playbook, well, if you're trying to run a playbook, you probably don't need a coach. Just go get the playbook, run the playbook. If you're trying to do something that's never been done before, you are not trying to climb a mountain. You're trying to build a mountain. It's the language my, my coach uses. Right. And so if you're trying to build a mountain, then you get to say like, well, what kind of future, what kind of life am I trying to build? So now this is the question of listening. What am I listening for? Now, am I just listening for what they're saying? Or am I listening to what they're not saying as well? Am I listening for how they're being, thinking, and doing? Am I listening for gaps in their integrity? Am I listening for where they are focusing their attention on their environment, their behaviors, their identity, their vision? Like So I think the difference is between the coaching habit. I've definitely coached leaders on how do I become a better coach? The, the, the assumption is helping people to find their own way leverages the Ikea effect for no, for lack of a better way of thinking about it. If people find their own way or you help them to find their own way, they are going to be more energized, more engaged and more accelerated in the path that they found in their own direction. And that's why I think having that ask tell spectrum is really important. Showing up with more asks and fewer tells is a habit that Michael wants more people to have. What I think is important is to do, is to know. So there's that two by two matrix in the book, the 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 four quadrants of conversational leadership, where there's asking and telling and problem focus and solution focus, and just knowing: Am I focusing on asking questions about what somebody thinks the problem is, or am I focusing my attention on asking them what solutions they are thinking about? So that's humble inquiry and the coaching mindset. There's nothing wrong with telling somebody what problem they're having, <laughs> if you really know, or telling them what solution they should do or take for their problem. The 
tell problem, tell solution pathway is what some of what the great um, management consultants do. And they make lots of money doing it. We, we could question their overall effectiveness, <laughs> not, not in making money. Right? That's a uh, soft point. I've, I remember uh, hearing an Apple, uh, sorry, a Steve Jobs saying, you know, the problem with that I have with consultants is that they don't have to live with the advice that they give me. <laughs> right, exactly. And so it's a great way to, you know, and so here's the thing. So with my friend who was sitting with his girlfriend, what he was trying to navigate is when should he be asking versus telling. Telling was easy for him and he he needed to change his operating system from I I'm hearing a little, I've asked a little bit about the problem and now I'm going to tell you about the solution. And I would say you can't just dr- jump from one upper corner of the of this 2 by 2 to the other. I say you got to sort of dance around it and say like, hey, so, oh, you're saying you've had this problem. Like, well, what have you tried? Oh, like what else? Oh, like have you have you thought about this as your challenge? Oh no, like well, what 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 do you think your problem really is? And that's just dancing around these quadrants slowly. Like you know, would you be open to? Can I get permission to go to this other quadrant and tell you some solutions that I found have been helpful in the past? No, I don't want any solutions. Oh, cool. Well, tell me more about what you think your challenge is. A great coach coaches with permission, even inside of a coaching conversation, right? I have to re-contract, I think, in each conversation to say, like, what do you, what would be really helpful? And I do this with my wife as well. I'm really clear, like, do you want coaching or do you want empathy or do you want brainstorming? And that's me being in control over what approach I bring to the conversation. It is a bad idea to coach your wife if she's not your client <laughs> without without their permission, right. right? You know, to brainstorm some on somebody's behalf when they aren't asking for your help, they just may be um, verbally processing their challenge, right? So to me... Um, Every coach has their own framework for what they are listening for and the type of challenges and the type of lenses they want to bring into the conversation. So some people, like I believe that there's a balance of inner and outer. You've heard me say the inner conversation is part of what we can create in the outer world. And so looking at your, your vision, your identity, your beliefs, your values, and being really intentional about those will help you create the things you want to create, right? Um, and that's part of my my coaching perspective. Now, there's some people who want someone who has a step-by-step process that says, like, in 12 weeks, I will do this, and this is the conversation we're going to have week by week, and I will guarantee you success at the other side. And I think there's... I. I I salute those people who can do that. What I say is, I don't know what you need or want yet. As we go along, I learn and I'll bring more. But it's, I believe that they are leading the conversation and I'm right behind them. And for some people, that's very confronting because even though they say they want a coach, what they really want is someone to tell them what to do because we've all been there. We're inside of the problem 
and we want someone to just take it away. It's a very paternalistic approach, and it's it's hard. It's hard to break that. Like, there's got to be a right answer for this. And I would love it if somebody would just, I would love it. I would love it if somebody would just tell me, you know, here's here's the handbook and you just have to follow. But I don't think for truly complex problems, which are the the really interesting ones, that there is a that there is a handbook for them, except for slowing down and um reflecting and looking at, you know, there's some basic frameworks that I use. And my coaching that I I learned from my coaching coach, right? And from all the other frameworks that I love to absorb and, you know, my own values, which means that I'm not going to work for everybody. For some people, they really want. I just met somebody. It's amazing. He apparently, like I meet with my clients for two hours every couple of weeks, but I have more conversations with them as they need because I we work on a retainer that will work for them. And What's interesting to me is that some people are like, no, no, I meet for an hour every week. I'm a friend of mine works with a coach who he just calls him anytime he wants to. And sometimes they have a five minute conversation and sometimes they have like a 20 minute conversation. They don't have any, like I have a standing appointment with my clients. And if I need to move it, if they need to move it, that's fine. Um, if they need to have an extra conversation, they can text me or they have a link and they can book it in my calendar. This guy just has a phone number and you can just call him and <laughs> you could call him too. Anybody <laughs> can call him. And, and he's like, yeah, I'll talk to anybody or you can leave a message. I'll call you back. Like, and um, I think that's amazing. You talk about designing conversations, right? Like that's just how he's designed his life. That's what he's interested in. And I'm like, I want high commitment spaces with people who are trying to do high leverage things. And I like that juicy hour long space, but I worked with, with a woman for a year. And after a year, she's like, you know, I really want to meet for an hour every week for, for a quarter and see how that feels differently. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. Let's try that. Like let's check in more often for less time. Like it's about the conversation. I don't know if I answered your question. That's like just like a tirade on on coaching, but no, this is this. Is I think the question of like, what kind of coach am I really looking for? Am I really looking for a coach, or am I looking for somebody who's an advisor or a consultant, or somebody who can do a little bit of all of those? Which is fine, right? Um, but the assumption that you have to work with someone who's done what you've done, but done what you're trying to do, means that you're looking for something else. Um, and that you think there's a right answer, which I would propose that there isn't. A phrase that you shared at the beginning of the conversation, and then there's one phrase that you shared just very recently. So that there were two one, two of them. One was humble mm, inquiry. Yes. And then the other one is a thinking partner. Now, the context that I have, and I want to give you some context so then you can speak to it, is as a creative person, you know, you have a client and you're trying to understand and uncover their true challenge. And that's where like some of the Michael Bungie stuff is like, okay, don't jump to a solution. If the client's saying, you know, I have a pain point, that's probably the symptom, not the cause and not the true challenge that they're having. And <laughs> by the way, he did make uh, fun of like, you know, we are all trained ourselves to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, okay. So, you know, in those early conversations, knowing some of the biases, you know, of, that people might have and, um, uh, going in and knowing when to switch gears between advisor and coach 
and yeah. going in from that attitude of humble inquiry thinking partner so what are some things in your experience that you've learned like for for example in the context of early sales conversation early discovery conversations with a yeah. prospective client or uh, any sort of specific relationship that you're just starting out we're trying to build trust and you're trying to let the other person know that you're credible that you know what you're doing but you're mm. coming from this place of humility so um could you potentially talk a little bit about that and then right after that i want to switch gears and jump into some of the thinking behind your operating system and stuff yes just how you approach those early conversations to build trust but also uh, uncover, help people uncover what their true challenges coming from that coach mindset. Yeah, that's a great question. And I know that you've, you've done some, some videos about the sales process and I think having a mindset. So I, I put another link into the, the chat. Uh, I interviewed Ian Altman who wrote a book called same side sales. I really enjoyed his perspective on sales. It changes, you know, the metaphor that we're living in these are narratives, memes that we're living, right? To say like, I am selling you my solution versus you are selling yourself on the value of solving a really big challenge. And certainly Ian talks about this. Certainly, I think you've talked about this as well, that the more we can understand about what the real problem is and what the pain of experiencing it is. And I mean, as Ian talks about this, the more we can stay in the world of the problem, the more um, uh, painful, <laughs> for lack of a better word, it is, the more they want to solve it. And the clearer we are on the value of, of resolving that challenge, the better. Because then the truth is, if, if we can even get a rough estimate of the problem, the value of solving the problem or the cost of doing nothing, then Almost anything we could provide is going to be going to be a ten x. Now I say this: this is e is easy to say. Um, it is hard to do. In in conversations, I feel the internal pressure of I really should know how to do this, and they're looking for in an hour long conversation you them to like throw to to sort of dump what their challenge is, and for you to give them. A ballpark of what it's going to cost when they haven't even uh this is a classic negotiator's dilemma when they haven't uh aren't willing to share what the cost of doing nothing is or don't know i don't have a sense of what their ideal budget was like what did they want to invest in this versus what is it going to cost so these are all mental models right that go into the thinking Coaching questions like, what have you tried in the past? How long have you had this challenge? How does this, in, in, the, in other situations, what have you done that has worked? Going, the ability just to slow down and ask more, to use the active listening or a listening triangle to be more inquiry-based is just a powerful mindset. Um, and I, I put in the chat as well, um, 
Ed, Ed Schein wrote a book, Humble Inquiry, which is where the, the term for me comes from, that the, the subtitle is The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. I think the more you ask, the more you have the right to tell, but you'll also find out what the real problem is. But it is very hard. Um, I think in sales conversations, I certainly feel the internal pressure to know the answer, uh, you know, to want to close to get excited about what it might be worth to me to solve this problem and to want them to like me. Like these are all internal conversations that I'm having with myself during the sales process where I'm like, God, this would be awesome. Like, wow, this could be like this much. Like that would be really cool. And all of that is taking me out of being right. All of I mean, this has never happened to you, right, Paul. <laughs> Right. <laughs> All of this is taking you out of the real conversation, which is what's their, how do they see the value of solving this problem? And what was their mental model? Like, what are they thinking about when they thought getting this fixed would be great? Like, what's their dream? And I think that's where the coaching mindset comes in, too. So, um, asking what they think the problem really is. And asking them what they've tried, right? What solutions they've thought about are, is really helpful. Like, what else have you, what have you been thinking about is really powerful. But there's another question, which is like, well, if it was fixed, what would it look like? Like, what would the magic wand question? If this was resolved, how would you know what it would look like? What is your dream? And that is certainly something that I think is maybe the difference between the coaching mindset that I've been taught and maybe a more traditional coaching mindset, certainly a consultant's mindset is really, really focusing on the ideal state, the dream, right? And getting them to be really, really clear because I think, um, and to getting them to amplify that dream and not going straight to, oh, well, you're, you want to do a design sprint. Okay, cool. Like, I guess I can do a design sprint for you. Um, here's how much that would usually cost. And that's conventional versus like, well, what are you really trying to solve here? Oh, well, the pricing mindset inside your organization is all off and these two teams don't talk. Like those are bigger problems. Like, can you solve those problems? Are you well-situated to solve them? Maybe, maybe not. Do you know someone who can help with those? Like, sure, maybe. So I think just like trying to understand the real context and the bigger the bigger problem is valuable, but I'll also say my slowed down approach to things doesn't always work for people. When I don't know what to do, I ask more questions and I slow down and it's certainly backfired for me in the past where somebody's like, you know, I kind of was hoping you would guide my hand and you would tell us what we should do. And well, how many sessions do you think it should be? And I'm like, well, I don't know how often you really think you can get these people together. Like, what do you think is possible? Like, I don't want to tell you, oh, we have to meet this often. And you tell me like, oh, we can't do that. And so you could either look at that as, well, Daniel didn't do a good job of being an, uh, a salesperson. And I've told myself that narrative. Or you can say, well, my way of being didn't work for their way of being. And so I just was trying to be myself and that didn't jibe with them, in which case, better luck next time. But it's that is a very challenging mental model. For consultant staff too, certainly if you're hungry. Um, 
I've been coached to be as generous as possible, like, and to have, you know, that it may take several conversations, some of them long ones, even going so far as to like do a workshop with them gratis, just to be like, well, let's just have a conversation. I would rather just do that than to try and scope that and to sort of charge and to set my benchmark on, okay, well, I'm a per diem person for them versus like, okay, well, how much is this worth in being on retainer? That's the kind of business that I'm that I'm trying to build because I just like would like to get deeper inside of the, the problem and to really be their partner in making it successful, not being a Steve Jobs anti-consultant. But that doesn't work for everybody. Some people just say like, I just want a design sprint. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, um, you should talk to this guy. You know, and I'm happy to refer you to him. Right. So I, I, I don't know if that it's, I think it's the, the humble inquiry, like the more you ask, the better, but I think everyone's got a different level of patience for that kind of stuff. And eventually they're going to want to, have a diagnostic, but I, this is something I've learned recently. Uh, I didn't know these two terms for organizational design and transformation. There are some people who believe in a diagnostic approach and some people who believe in a dialogical approach, a diagnostic approach to organizational development or organization design or team development or any kind of transformation is to say like, I am an expert can ask the right questions and know enough to provide a reasonable solution. But that flies in the face of the fact that most of these situations are complex. In a, you know, in a VUCA world, in a, in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world, to propose that one smart person could ask enough, this is not an airplane engine. An airplane engine is complicated. And this is, you, you know the difference between complex and complicated, but for our friends listening at home, Something that is complicated um, is hard to fix, but somebody with a manual and enough experience can figure out by doing enough tests, oh, it's the spark plug or, oh, it's this fuel line. They can figure it out. There's no ghost in the machine. Something that's complex is it is impossible to know exactly which part is is the is the challenge right and this is why when you go to a massage therapist if you're a massage fan i am these when somebody says like oh it hurts here rub me there right my shoulder hurts rub my shoulder <laughs> right so my mother's a massage therapist she'll tell you like the um the culprit cries the what is it the victim cries out but the culprit remains silent right so you think it's your shoulders your shoulder shirt and you want your shoulders rub, but it, it could actually be your hips or your feet. It could be how you're walking, right? It's not your shoulders. It, it could be a host of other factors because you as a person are a complicated assortment of individual interlocking interconnected systems. And so is an organization. And so is a team. And that's why I personally believe in a dialogical approach. I would much rather just get all the people into a room with a minimum viable structure and to begin to have a conversation about the problem and what they're imagining the solution could be rather than this person. And I've done this. I've made this mistake, Paul. A leader comes to me and says, my team needs more blank. We would love for you to train them on blank. And I said, cool. Let's have a couple more conversations about it. And then boom, 
sure, let's make this, let's, here's all the things you'd like them to learn. Well, half the people don't care and are checked out. Half the people are curious. Another half of the people, it's basic. They want more. It's more than more than a whole. People have multiple identities. I should have just gotten everyone together and say, what does this topic mean to you? I could have, right? And just started going with this guy who said, oh, we want to sprint. Like, well, let's get all those people together and say, what do you think the real challenge is? Let's just start. Um, and this is, I don't know if you've ever, um, if, you, if you Google, I think, I don't know what the guy's name was, but he talks about like agile consulting where he just, instead of making a giant proposal, he just says, okay, let's just have, let's just start. Let's have a, let's get a, let's do a, an open space workshop. We'll, we'll, we'll get started there. You know, we'll do a sprint. And at the end of the week, if you don't think that there's any value to it, we'll just take all the We'll, we'll pack up our stuff and go home. And you don't you you can't use any of the prototypes. You can't use any of the code. You can't use any of the the designs. And that's fine. But if you think there's value to it, you can keep them and and we'll we'll charge you what we think is appropriate and you'll pay it. And then they just do another week. Like that's how they've set up their. We're not going to do a giant proposal. We're just going to start, and we'll charge you at the end of the first increment of work because like. It's worth it to them. I loved it. It's like instead of spending weeks and months screwing with procurement and scoping a master service agreement, they're like, we just want to get started. Now, I'm not saying one is better than the other. What I'm saying is like there are different approaches to designing the conversation. Having a perfect understanding and scoping a perfect contract for a complex challenge, I think, is um. For those of you out there who know how to do it, I please email me. I probably could get better at it. <laughs> right. Um. <laughs> this is me like not being good at it and saying, you know, living in the mystery is much better. Um, <laughs> humble inquiry is great. And other people are like, no, no, no. Uh, and there are mechanics out there who are like and my friends who are who are sprint consultants who just know how to carve off a more complex challenge from the complicated one. And that's, I think that's a very, very effective um, approach. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know if like sales is complex, but having a different mindset of deeper inquiry, uh, having a same side sales approach. So um, Ian Alman, his, his mental models, it's a puzzle we're getting on the same side to solve instead of a, a war or a game. And so I think back to triple loop learning, changing your mental model from this is something I'm doing to you to something we are thinking about together. And the way I want to be in this conversation is your friend, be curious, be slow. Those are all different ways to approach the sales conversation then. Like I've got a, and I talk about this, the way of the wolf. I don't know if you've seen the wolf of wall street. I presume maybe you haven't. Um, it's a wonderful classic. He has that scene where he says, like, you know, sell me this pen. And he has a book about sales, which is called The Way of the Wolf. And his approach is what he calls the straight line sales conversation, where you go from the open to the close with no exploration. And it's a very traditional sales approach, which is about um, handling objections and creating pressure and forward movement. And there's nothing wrong with those that sales approach, but it's very different if you're trying to do something complex 
than if you're trying to sell a widget to somebody in volume. I think my biggest beef always is you know, this us versus them mentality. Oh, the client doesn't know what they want. Or it's like, do you know, like, what, how did you arrive at? They don't know what they want, right? Did you ask them enough questions kind of thing? Uh, did you sort of try to uncover? Did you jump at solutions when the client just said, I want X and you said, okay, that's what it costs. Like without understanding why they're trying to make what they're trying to make. I think that leads to a really good uh, sort of, again, framework that you've described in your book, which I really liked. And it was like these why else statements, which is connected to the abstraction ladder uh, where, you know, for example, Simon Senek has like this golden circle. Uh, I mean, for the audience listening, uh, you know, I'll just quickly describe it. So Simon Sinek has this really famous talk, TED talk, who's been viewed millions of times. And he has like this golden circle where he puts the why in the middle. He's like, why do companies exist? Why do they do what they do? And then the how and the what becomes more clear where you have a very different perspective. So I would love for you to sort of talk a little bit about that, which I found actually was a little bit more helpful than having that golden circle. Well, so I know you were curious to also connect, or I, I will connect some of this to the conversation operating system that's in 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 the book. The, the idea behind the conversation operating system is that there are ways to shift a conversation and there are ways in which we're currently building the conversation. If we change how we're building the conversation, we'll, we'll change how it's running. Simple example is uh, people is one of the elements of the conversation OS. If we, if we invite different people to the conversation, if we have a larger or a smaller conversation, we just know from our own experience, the conversation will act, behave differently. And that's one of the reasons why, as a facilitator, I love creating time for small conversations and large conversations, just having variety. I look at that element of the OS and I'm just playing with it, right? I'm playing with that element. I'm dancing with the size of the of the conversation. The the thing, and maybe it's because I have a background in interaction design, I realized that conversations are mediated, happen in a place. So space is an element of the conversation. We know again from our own experience that um having a conversation in a big long boardroom. I don't know if you like my favorite example of this is the very, very first Batman movie where Bruce Wayne and, and Vicki Vale are having dinner, like at the end, opposite ends of like an insanely long table. And we know that that is like not the, you're not, that's not a good way to fall in love with someone 30 feet away from each other. <laughs> right. You can't have a really good, you know, pass the salt. Like you have to walk over and back. Like it was ridiculous. Like it was intentionally ridiculous. And you know, a lot of boardrooms that I've done workshops in are just literally not designed for the kind of dynamic, interactive, integrated conversations that I like to facilitate. You can't put anything on the wall. I've worked in offices back in the day where you couldn't leave anything up on the wall overnight. And you and I know from our agency days that having a space that is filled with the shared brain of the group changes the conversation that you can have day on day to day. Similarly, in the conversations that we have, we can create spaces for dialogue. And that can be as simple as a whiteboard conversation. Whiteboards create a space for an incredibly powerful, dynamic, interactive conversation because multiple people can go up on it and draw together and think together. They can have 
distributed cognition. They're not just thinking in their heads, they're thinking in a space and a place together. Uh, I connect this to also um, somebody who had on my podcast, Tyson Yonkaporta, who um, is an indigenous uh, thinker, philosopher, teacher, and he writes about how indigenous thinking can save the world. He's a he's a bit of a trickster, a trickster god. He's he was very hard to interview. So if if people want to learn more about his work, I would say just read the book, or uh, you can listen to the podcast where I talk with two other members of alumni of some of my workshops where we just talk about the book together. Cause I think the conversation with Tyson is just so all over the place, but his perspective is we exist in place. This is the Aboriginal perspective. We exist in a place and we can't divorce our thinking from the place we come from. So there's books written about distributed cognition as if it's this new brain science thing, whereas Aboriginal thinkers have been knowing for millennia that their thinking and their being is rooted in a place, in a sense of space. Now, I'm going to bring this back to the abstraction ladder because we can either have what I would call an air conversation where we're just waving our hands in the air and the air leaves no mark. Once I say what I say, it's gone. And maybe it's in your head, but you heard what you heard. I don't know what you heard. You thought you heard what I said. I can think at 4,000 words per minute. I only speak at 125. So for sure, I didn't say everything I'm thinking about it. And you heard what I heard heard what I said, but you were thinking the same time. So you heard some of what you were thinking and you heard some of what I was saying. So how do we know that what we're really talking about is what we're talking about? So I think one of the most powerful things we can do as consultants, as coaches, as facilitators, as leaders is to create spaces for conversations. Now, Simon Sinek attempted to do that with his golden circle to say, here's a circle. I'm going to draw it on the wall. Let's talk about what, why, and how. That mental model, that thinking space changes what the way we will construct a conversation and it puts why in the center. But why? Why is why at the center? There's another version of this where, well, where's who? Who's, where's who? Why is why more important than who? Who says? Simon? Is Simon at the center of that diagram? I think he is. <laughs> so the question of a circle with, with a center and an edge implies that why is actually more important than how and, and what. And who isn't even on that fucking diagram? Don't even get me started. <laughs> I apologize. You'll have to mark this. This is not, not clean. So what I like about the abstraction ladder is that it puts what in the center? Because that's what we're here to talk about. What are we going to do? What's the big challenge? What's going to happen next? What is going on? And the, the question of why is this question important and how can we resolve it? There's a fundamental tension. Um, there's a book called The Primes uh, where they talk about 
big hat and little hat thinking, which I don't like that perspective because it assumes that there's like, again, it's just about power dynamics. Like somehow the why people are more important than the how people. And again, with abstraction laddering, it still implies like above versus below. But I find that it is a different space for thinking. The latter helps people think, well, why? And what's a bigger why? What's the biggest why? And then how is, what is the most granular and even more granular, more concrete how that we can think of? And we need why people and we need how people. Why people and how people are not more important than the other. Why people are just in, in the air and how people have their feet on the ground. That's what the abstraction ladder kind of implies. And we need how people, we need the how to be infused with the why. And the why needs to be grounded by the how. Abstraction laddering is a very challenging tool to use. Most of the people I've coached and using it go out and use it and say, that was hard. And I'm like, yeah, thinking is hard. Reframing a problem is hard. Taking a weird, uh, you know, a question and thinking really big about it and thinking really granular about it is hard. But I have seen that it can help shift and reframe the question in a positive way. It is one of many ways to frame the conversation around why, what, and how. A circle is one way, polemical. It, it says, why is in the center? The abstraction ladder says, what's in the center? Um, what I find is that when you take the abstraction ladder and you cover it with sticky notes as the result of a conversation, what you're left with in the article that I put a link to in the chat, we wind up with a web of why, what, and how. And that helps us begin to find a way forward with a group of people. I think you can have a great conversation with either one of those two frames. They each can create a space for a conversation. And as I said, both of them leave off who, right? But we can create interfaces for conversations and the interface shapes the conversation in the same way that a boardroom shapes the conversation for better or worse, right? And the, the so does Simon Sinek's circle versus um, Hayakawa's abstraction ladder shapes the conversation. And it's just, we have to ask ourselves, like, what conversation do we want to create? Like, what conversation do we want to facilitate? I think the abstraction ladder is great in terms of like starting the conversation. And you can use it as with many frameworks, you don't have to draw it. You can still, you can ask as in an interview or whether you're, you know, why is that important? Well, how else have you tried? Like, why is that important to you? How else have you been thinking about it? Like just, just, just going back and forth between those po poles on the abstraction ladder, I think it'd be really powerful uh, mental model. Is that, is that helpful? Yes, for sure. Um, I wish I had, okay. <laughs> I definitely wish I had way more time, but uh, knowing that we're sort of, we have a couple of only like maybe like five, 10 minutes more, you know, uh, we're sort of running out of time, as they say, as they say, I do want to sort of ask you one final question before we jump into this activity of 3001 questions all about me, which I will explain in a moment. But the final question that I have for you uh, before we sort of switch gears is, and this is something that you just said, which was, you know, our brain is thinking at me like 4,000 words plus right? Whereas we can only speak at a certain, like maybe 100 words or 125 or whatever that looks like. And one thing that I've personally struggled with, and I 
you know, is to be a great communicator. I've noticed with some people, they're so, they have so much clarity and intention in their thought as they're expressing them, even on the spot. So it's like, you're almost like wrestling with all these voices in your brain that we talked about earlier to what's actually finally leaving your mouth. So how do you sort of think about that or tackle that or solve for that (laughs) or? Yeah, it's a great question. I think slowing down more in general is helpful. I think the other is just, is it is sometimes practice. Some of this is performative and, um, knowing your lines like so i've done you know i've talked about my book a fair amount i've i've written i wrote my book right that was hard enough so like we should all know what we think about things right like we should spend more time with ourselves and think think what we're thinking so writing is a great portal i think uh, I've certainly learned through writing uh, the the golden triangle, sorry, the listening triangle is a great example. Like I read about it. I was curious about it. I decided to draw and write my own thinking about it and then have incorporated it into my conversations. And as I've gone along, it's become clearer and clearer to me. Similarly with the frameworks that I use for coaching. The first time I heard the you know triple loop learning i was like how, do you, how does that even relate to like coaching and it slowly changed my thinking pattern and my speaking pattern because i integrated the framework into my mind so i think with all of these things the more time we spend journaling is one way to integrate these things um talking about them with friends in a safe space um trying it out in a more edgy space like with a client writing about it to clarify our own thinking like what you do like making a video about it like how i how would i explain this to somebody right then it becomes lower barrier when we when we're getting into the the heat of a live conversation because we've integrated it um, in into our into our being, I think it just comes with with practice, right? And and then it becomes more of a um, of a reflex behavior. Even just saying that's a great question, like that's a you know we we know that even as fast as we can think, it takes us a moment to actually come up with a response. And so at some point we saw someone else say, Paul, that is a great question. So I want to make sure that I heard you right. Like it seems like there's two components to that question. And it's this and this. Like that's just a that's a behavior that is learned that allows us to buy time to say things that are more thought well thought out. Because while we um can reply with that little bit of patter that's well-practiced and then actively listen with like a third of our brain because it doesn't take all of our brain. We can be like, wait a minute, there was something else. And as you're reflecting back, 
you're starting to comb your brain for the things that you thought were most interesting and important. Right. So like, these are all ways you can, like, you're, you're doing the good thing by listening to them and saying, did I get that right? Are those the two biggest challenges that you're, you're facing? And if they say no, you go, they go, oh, well, cool. Like tell it to me again. And they go, yeah, that's right. And you're like, so wait, can you tell me a little bit more about that second one? And that is just, it's a sure it's buying you time. I, this idea that somehow we, we should be expected to be able to say the exact right thing when we're put on the spot is just, is just bad design, right? It's putting, it's putting way too much pressure on ourselves. I, I think. And so some of these things like the listening triangle and active listening and slowing down isn't just to get better stuff out of them. It also helps you get better stuff out of you. I see you. He's, he's nodding a lot, ladies and gentlemen. How's that hitting for you? <laughs> I'm loving every second of this. Um, I might be, I might be biased because I might be a fanboy. Um, okay. Loved it. Um, and to be honest, like I've learned so much in this conversation and this conversation is so much fun for me. Thank you for your great questions. And some of the very nuanced things that you sort of touched on, you know, which is not necessarily in the book, but I would highly recommend, you know, reading this book called Good Talk by Daniel Stillman. Is that the correct pronunciation, right? Stillman? Yes, it is. Thanks for asking. There's also an audio book if you like listening to things. Right. Although somebody did say that I... I um, I pause too much. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But I, I went to all the trouble to record it. So if you like listening to books, you can't you can't see the cartoons, but um there's a link to the audiobook if um if people prefer. There's also, I mean, I can give you the link to the the book website, which is just theconversationfactory.com slash good to good talk. And there are free chapters there for people if they'd they want to poke around, kick under the tires. More than happy for them to do that. I would highly recommend getting the physical book because it's just full of so much good stuff and it's just so beautifully designed and so easy to consume. Again, you know, you're not paying me to say any of this. I'm just going. No, it's true. <laughs> I will say this. Somebody who is like, I don't know, show of hands in the audience, like who thinks of themselves as a reader who struggles with getting through books? Everybody's hand is raised that it's a struggle. I was at a, I was doing a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago where I just let everyone know that my sincere dream was to design what I call a bathroom book, a book that you can um, just leave uh, in your bathroom and that whenever you have time to read one or two pages in any order that you can get value from it. Because as one page has one idea, the spreads kind of relate to each other. And this guy came up to me during the break. He's like, you know, I was like really not sure whether or not I would make time to read your book. But now that you've let me know that it's a bathroom book and that I can read any page anywhere, anytime I want and get something out of it, I'm going to crack it open. And I'm like, yeah, you can do that. Um, I love bathroom books and I didn't intentionally, I really, I think nonlinear books, like you can read it front to back, but uh, a book, like having one idea per page was a real challenge for me. But I think it makes it easier to read because you see the whole page, you see the header, and you see like it's just there. And it's and it's my 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 publisher wanted to make it a six by nine book, which is like a very standard like thought leader book format. I'm like six by nine is too big. You can fit too much in that page. It's too much rope to hang yourself with. In this case, like it five by eight really forced 
created an opportunity for me to really strip down the ideas. And if it could not fit in a page, it became two pages, right? Or if it couldn't fit in two in one page, I used smaller words, <laughs> simpler ideas. And I think that makes it easier to read. I hope. I'm glad you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, it's Thank it's you. really well thought out. In fact, you know, even though you know all the individual pages are like one idea each, you can still read it front cover to cover, and it flows so beautifully, and the ideas just stack on top of each other. Or you know how you put it in the book, you know the fabric or threading the conversation. That's how the book is mm -hmm. actually designed. It's a demonstration of what you're yes. preaching, basically. And okay, so I'm just gonna quickly switch gears here. I'm gonna ask you to yeah. pick a number between one and 3001. Mm. And I'm going to ask, it's it's just a book of questions. I'm going to ask you a question based on the number that you yeah. give me. Four, 43. 43. Okay, here we go. So this, let's see here. 43. Oh, okay. Here we go. Uh, have I ever baked a dessert should I learn how to? Hmm. Have I? Oh man, I love baking. Um, I grew up with a little bit of a sweet tooth. And so I, I as somebody who wanted to be self-sufficient, I learned, I learned how to, how to bake at a fairly early age. I enjoyed baking with my mother and love trying out new recipes, love hacking recipes. Um, my friends will tell you I really good at making up any kind of fruit cobbler with any kind of like overripe, almost ready to throw out fruit with any kind of other ingredients that you have available. If it's butter, if it's oil, if it's coconut oil, if we have seeds, nuts, flour, whatever it is, like with or without a recipe, I can make uh, a cobbler, a compote, a crumble of some sort. I wouldn't even call that baking. That is just second nature to me. But yeah, I'm 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 a pretty pretty good baker. That was too easy. Give me another. Okay. <laughs> Pick one more number. <laughs> uh, 46. More. 46. Oh, that's pretty close okay. to 43. Yeah, as, okay. Yeah, yeah, make it easy for you. Unless they're all themed in which in which case. No, um, it's just book of just random questions. So this one is do I feel relaxed? <laughs> like right now? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, I do feel relaxed. Thank you for asking. I just went on a retreat with myself, which I highly recommend. <laughs> I rented a house in the Poconos with a hot tub and I, I relaxed. I took some hikes. I thought about the, the year. Uh, behind and ahead, so I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty relaxed right now. Thanks for asking. Are you relaxed, Paul? This is a whole really fascinating question to ask somebody. Are you relaxed? <laughs> I would have never thought of that. That's why this book is so good. It's just a bunch of whole random questions and uh, yeah, good conversation starter. You know, or you know, you add. What haven't we talked about that we should have? Is there anything that you wanted to ask me that we like? Is there is there anything else that we haven't talked about that would be really important for us to talk about? Okay. Uh, I could actually ask you a question, not specific to me, but I get this. I've been recently, a couple of my friends have been promoted into these executive positions. Okay. Yes. And this is for them actually. So because they got promoted, so they were 
imagine your colleague becoming your boss. Now, how do you address yes. that elephant in the room for the person who's just become mm. promoted? Because you know the dynamic changes, and how do you convey that? And it's like he was one mm. of us, and how would you even think about yeah. that? And well. First of all, I'd be happy to have a conversation with them one-on-one -on -one about this challenge because that's the best way to do it. But the first thing I would ask is like, well, how do you want to show up in that conversation, right? The willingness to have difficult, quote-unquote, difficult conversations, I think, are only difficult if we come into them with that mindset. If we start close in and decide to go to the heart of the conversation, and are really curious and say, like, what would you like our relationship to be like? Well, that's an easy conversation to have. Also, the question of, like, what kind of power do I have over them? What kind of a leader do I want to be? Like, am I actually here to tell them that they're good or bad? Or am I their coach? And what do I really believe a good one-on-one -on -one is like? Is it an opportunity for them? And am I just their coach now? Have I worked on those skills or am I getting Peter principled in this case? You know, the Peter principle, like we get um, promoted to the level of our incompetence. And now that you are a manager, a leader, what should the conversation really be? Is it about whether they're doing good work? Are you there to like babysit them? Tell them that they're good or bad? Or are they an adult? Are you there to just be their coach to get things out of their way? What is your philosophy for leadership? Like, what kind of a leader do you want to be? I mean, that's I think that's the the conversation that they have to have with themselves or that they can invite themselves to that conversation. So like, yeah, well, how how will I lead? What does leadership mean to me? Am I a Maryland just leader where I come with humility? Or am I a Simon Sinek leader where I'm going to come in with why? Or am I, am I a Michael Bunjay Stanier leader where I'm just going to have a coaching habit? Um, it's a question of choice, right? You get to you get to choose. And that's the extraordinary thing. That's also the challenge, right? Because there's so many ways to be, but they get to choose. If they are aware of the choice, they get to choose. They're not in this conversation, so we can't tell if it's helpful, but I don't know if that are, are some portals for them to start to think about how can they best be of service in this relationship? Well, that's a much more, you know, instead of saying like, well, now I'm your boss, so that's weird. Let's talk about that. That's a very different conversation than so how can I be of service to you now? Like, what did you want? How can we create great things for get together? What do you need from me? What should we be asking that we're, we're not asking? What's been in your way all this time? And how can we remove all those? Like, those are all questions that I think could really drive a very powerful relationship. Brilliant. Um, yeah. This has been, so I'm going to just do a quick, just summary of what I've learned in this podcast. I'll take like a minute, maybe like 30 seconds actually <laughs> okay. at most. 
And while I do that, I, love you know, it. I, I would want two hours into 30 seconds. <laughs> just the cliff notes, I guess. Um, but, yes, yes. You know, I would want to end with, you know, so what are you currently offering in terms of what, what you're doing in terms of, you know, you have you, you've talked about the coaching uh, parts that you do, but also where people can connect with you. And obviously for the audience in this thing, I'll be putting all the links and which you've already sent over to me via the Zoom chat. Uh, in addition to some of the yeah. stuff that I also have, I'll put everything in the show notes. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. So we've covered a lot of ground um, right at the beginning. It's we started from humble inquiry and then we sort of, you know, came full circle uh, in terms of uh, the understanding, you know, when to talk and how to listen like a pro, you know, from coaching, the, dif the difference between coaching and advisory and helping people uncover their true challenge, you know, what kind of questions to ask. Uh, and in terms of the, uh, and when they're answering those questions, when to know to interrupt them and when to continue listening using frameworks like the listening triangle, uh, which is following up with paraphrasing what you've heard to asking them follow-up questions, uh, which, you know, and asking them to give different perspectives on that same thing, uh, to also talking about you know, helping women who are psychologically are not wired to be more risk takers like guys are because guys have to go ask a girl out. Culturated. Culturated. That might be a better word. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Or program programmed rather than. Yeah. I wouldn't say men or women are wired any particular way. That's like, actually or even wired differently. Actually, that's a really good point. Uh, culturally, uh, you know, men are expected to go ask a girl's hand or, you know, you know, yeah, make that men, proposal. To, to be clear, women are punished for taking on male characteristics, so-called male characteristics, and men are punished for taking on so-called female characteristics. So men who are too soft or too empathetic, uh, too gentle are, you know, girly babies, you know, wusses. And women who take on so-called male characteristics are bossy, um, shrill, like um, brusque. Like these are all, sorry for breaking your, but this is very no, important. No, no, I'm glad that you clarified this point. I don't want to make some wild assumptions here. It's good. I think it's the clarity and thinking again that you're demonstrating um, is again, also, I think one other point that sort of, I think I heard somebody talk about, it's like, you know, typically in the back of the day, a girl would drop her hand handkerchief and that would be a sign <laughs> for the guy to go talk to her. So she was making the first move, right? Mm. Yeah, we don't have those signals anymore. Carry more handkerchiefs, everyone. <laughs> Again, those are just like old like fables and stories and stuff. But we also uh, talked about, you know, the inner voice that you have with yourself and how that's informed by years of immersion with different voices and, and then how that looks like going outwards all the way to the complex conversations, sort of understanding the incentives behind you know, it's like thinking, doing, saying, acting, believing, sort of uncovering and unpacking that and really getting to the heart of the matter. Uh, so I think that this book does that really well with the uh, with the conversation OS. OK, so if I've left out any in interesting point, please do add. And then where can people find you and what what do you currently offer? Yeah, um, people can find me two places. Uh, DanielStillman.com is a place where you can find uh, my writing and ways to get in touch with me. Um, you can find links to my podcast there, but my podcast does have its own website, 
theconversationfactory.com. I um, I would say still I'm in transition. I, I right now don't really offer much group training anymore. Um, I'm running the last cohort of my facilitation masterclass right now. So really the only way for people to work with me is as a one-on-one coach. Um, if there is someone who I'm working with on a, a deeper arc who needs team development or some of these, you know, uh, organizational shifts, we do it inside of that context, but training as a standalone vehicle is not something that I'm, I'm offering anymore just because I, I find that it's, it's, it doesn't work well for me and I'm not set up my, I'm not optimizing, optimizing my business for that. So really just I'm working with people as a one-on-one coach and they can obviously read my book. They can listen to the podcast. Those are ways that they can, they can interact with me. That I think that's the, that's the net net. Fantastic. Um, so all the, for all the listeners, uh, the links are going to be all in the show notes. Uh, do check out Daniel Silman's book, good talk and do check out his podcast. And if you're interested for get on one-on-one coaching uh, and any final words, and then we'll end. Oh, final words. Um, (laughs) Not to put you on the spot. (laughs) I mean, it's the subtitle of the book, you know, conversations matter. Right. And we have, if, if we don't have the ability to design conversations, then I think we're screwed, right? I say we are all designing conversations already. And my conversation OS and what the book is based on is just my perspective and me trying to peer through and make sense of this very complex and deeply human domain, which is interacting with, communicating, persuading, and creating with other people. It's, I think, everyone's job to decide for themselves what they want to design their conversations to optimize. I have found that in my conversation OS, I used to, and when we met, I was, my facilitation style was much more athletic, forward moving. And I've learned the value of slowing down and my OS has shifted, right? And there's nothing wrong with fast. It's just that fast becomes tiring. And I think our culture could use a little more slow. So that's what I say, like slowing down conversations is generally helpful because we're really good at trying to go through things fast. We're not so great at going slow. So slow is slow is steady and steady. What does the, the, the Marines say? Slow is, st- is um, steady and steady is safe, something like that. And I, so I think slowing down conversations is a, if that's not part of your operating system, Give yourself a reboot and see if you can bring some slowness into your conversations. This has been a fantastic podcast. I've really enjoyed it, learned a lot. Hopefully the audience can, you know, take away their own sort of perspectives and ideas mm. and, you know, uh, elements and pieces. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Really had a Thanks great for time. all the questions, Paul. It's, it's so great to reconnect. I'm, I'm really glad for the invitation. It's I love talking about this stuff, as you can tell. <laughs> Same. <laughs>